Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. This morning's reading is from Genesis 16, verses 1 through 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, Zach, thanks for leading us this morning while Lucius is on the beach and somewhere tropical. Uh, my name is Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here at New King. And if you're uh, new with us, if you're a guest this morning, we're so glad that you have joined us. Uh, I'd love to meet you later after the service. Uh, so we're in the middle of our second series in Genesis on the life of Abraham that we're calling uh, God of Promises. And so Abraham's story in Genesis runs primarily from Genesis 12 through Genesis 22. And Eric and Camden have uh, gotten us to this part uh, in the story here in Genesis 16. And if you'll remember, Eric has pressed us to know that the promise is divided into two parts. So the first half of the story of Genesis is focused on the promise of the land. Good, you listened. And the second half is focused on the promise of the seed or the offspring. And so today, uh, as we move from uh, Genesis 15 to Genesis 16, we're going to make that turn. And now from from Genesis 16 through Genesis 22, the primary focus will be on God's promise that he will give Abraham and Sarah a son. And so if you remember last week, we're in Genesis 15. And in that story, Abram is having doubts about the promise of God. And so God comes to him, and he takes him outside, and he shows him the night sky, and he assures Abram that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then God cuts a covenant with Abram, a covenant that only God is responsible for, and he promises Abram that the land will be his. Now, there's not one of us in this room who hasn't struggled with doubt at some point. And when we take those doubts to the Lord, he is gracious to us and he reassures us of his promises. Genesis 16 teaches us what happens when we don't turn to the Lord in our doubts and we decide to take things into our own hands. When we refuse to turn to the Lord, when we let our doubts turn into distrust. And the story of Genesis 16 is in two parts. So I'm going to walk through the first half, uh, pointing some things out to you, and end part one with a warning. And then I'll walk through the second part of the story, and part two ends with an assurance. So let's dive into Genesis uh, chapter 16, 
starting in verse 1. It says, Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him. Now, the Hebrew reads like this. If you're reading the Hebrew, it says, Now Sarai had not borne any children for Abram. And immediately your ears should perk up. We just read chapter 15. We know Abram struggled with doubt, and in his grace, God comes to him. He brings him outside. He shows him the stars, the wonder of the night sky, and he says, count the stars. Your offspring will be as numerous as that. And when we read chapter 16, there are no children. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Egypt in the book of Genesis equals self-reliance. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram goes to Egypt because there's a, a famine in the land. And so he takes his whole household and he goes to Egypt. And just as they're about to enter Egypt, he turns to Sarah and he says, look, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And so when we get to Egypt, they're going to kill me so they can have you. So here's the plan. You say that you're my sister, and that way I can save my own hide, and we can both live. And so Sarah agrees with that. And so when they get there, they do it. And Pharaoh takes Sarai into his house, and because Abram has willingly given him his sister, who we know to be his wife, Pharaoh gives him flocks and herds and donkeys and camels and slaves. That's where she comes into the picture. Most likely, it's here that Hagar enters Abram's family and his household. And why is that? Because Abram relied on his own plan instead of relying on God. He relies on himself. Egypt equals self-reliance. And we're about to see it again here in this passage. Look at verse 2. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. Sarai is desperate. In just a few sentences, we will learn that Abram and Sarai have been in the land for 10 years. It's been 10 years since God came and told Abram to go. It's been 10 years since God came and uh, told them that he would give them the land. It's been 10 years since they were promised to be made into a great nation. And yet, after 120 months of hoping, maybe this month, there's no baby. And in order to be made into a great nation, there's got to be a baby. And so in her desperation and her doubt, she formulates this plan and convinces herself it's the only way. She begins to believe the lie that not only has God not kept his word, but he's prevented her from having a baby, meaning he's against her. Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he can't do it. Maybe he's just changed his mind. Then she believes the lie that she can fix it herself. She looks at Hagar, and her mind starts spinning, and she begins to think, ah, she's young. She's beautiful. If Abraham and I die, all of this is going to a slave anyway. Abram can just sleep with her. She believed the lie of the culture. Now, this thought is appalling to us, but in the culture that Sarai came out of and in the culture that's living around her, this was a practice that had been done for a thousand years. 
But God had called Abram away from all of that to a life of righteousness, to a life of pursuing the one true God. And Camden reminded us a few weeks ago that after God called Abraham to go, Abram, Abram began to pursue righteousness. He very often would turn from evil and pursue good. That's seen through all out, throughout the chapters of Genesis 13 and 14. They had not been called to live a life that reflected the culture, but instead to live a life that came out of the culture, to live lives that honored and glorified the Lord. And so it's at this moment in Genesis 16 that we expect a retelling of Genesis 15. We expect that the righteous mouth of Abram goes to the grieving ear of Sarai and he says to her, uh, he puts her arm around her, he takes her outside and he says, dear, look at the night sky and try to count the stars. I can't do it. I've tried to do it. Every night since God came to me, I've gone outside and I've tried to count the stars and I can't do it. And God's going to make our offspring as numerous as that. But that's not what the text says. Instead, we read, and Abraham, or Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. The way the Hebrew is written here, it could not be more bland. There's no argument. There's no drama. It simply says, and Abram agreed to what Sarai said. This Abram, who God called to go to a land he promised, but he didn't tell him where it was, and Abram went. It's this Abram who, when he heard that his nephew Lot had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 men, and he pursued the enemy kings of the land as far as Dan. He deployed against them at night. He defeated them. He drove them off north of Damascus, and he brought back their goods and Lot and Lot's goods and all the women that were with them. It's this Abraham who just one chapter prior, God visits and he cuts a covenant with him and Abram believes God and God credits, it him, credits him, uh, to him as righteousness. It's this Abram who's now lived in the land for 10 years, who knows God keeps his promises. And he looks at his wife, Sarai, and he says, okay, we'll do it. And the reality is that Abram's response is a bigger scandal than Sarai's plans. Why? Because it's Abram who has heard the voice of God, not Sarai. He has been given no instruction to take Hagar as his own to fulfill the promise of God. He just passively agrees to the plan. In verse 4, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. He just does it. Together, Abram and Sarai conspire and use Hagar, who, by the way, has no say in the matter. It's not even named by Abram and Sarai, and she gets pregnant. And if by chance you miss the notion that there's no hope of Sarai building a family through Hagar, just buckle up because it's about to get really intense. It says, when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. 
Hagar gets proud. That which Sarai can't do, Hagar has no problem doing. From the moment Hagar knows she's pregnant, her pride kicks in and she starts strutting around the house. Her hands find her belly all the time. She complains that her shirt and her pants don't quite fit like they used to. She's constantly out of breath. She takes a double portion at dinner every night and she kind of winks at Sarai and she says, you know, I'm eating for two. She does that weird thing that pregnant women do when they like find the seat behind there, but they don't ever turn around. Now we can argue whether that's right or wrong, but make no mistake, Hagar has been viewed and used as a commodity. Hosea 8, 7 says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. Make absolutely no mistake. Sarai knows what she's done and she simply can't handle it. She explodes. Verse 5 says, then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between you and me. Lest we start wagging fingers at Sarai for shifting blame on Abraham, let's stop for a moment and realize that she's right. Her approach is not right. She is not a victim in the story. She is a sinner just as much as Abram, but God came to him. He's the head of that household. He had been made a promise. He had entered a covenant with God. He should have stopped it from the very beginning. The problem is not that Abram listened to his wife. The problem is that he didn't listen to God. And now he has a second chance. He has the opportunity to bow in repentance before God and cry out for mercy and for forgiveness. He has the opportunity to lead his household back to the throne of God, to take responsibility and blame and to begin making things right, even with the consequences of sin. But instead, verse 6 says, Abram replied to Sarai, here your slave is in your hands, do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Abram capitulates to the social convention of the day. The culture around him says, sure, go ahead, get rid of her. And so he just gives her to Sarai. Right or wrong, and I mean wrong, Hagar is his wife now, and in her womb is a child, and he just mercilessly throws her at Sarai, who has lost all capacity to think clearly or rightly or graciously about the situation. And the word, the Hebrew word here for mistreated It's the same word used later of what the Egyptian slave masters would do to Israel. Moses is pointing out the irony as he writes this to them. And Hagar simply can't endure the violence, so she ran away. And so before we walk walk through part two of the story, beginning in verse seven, I want us to consider the warning that these first six verses give us. The warning is this. Do not lose trust in God. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8 says, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days, a full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. 
Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Abram and consequently Sarai forgot the teaching of their Lord. In their doubt and in their desperation, their hearts did not keep the commands of God. Abram had visited with God, but he let loose the loyalty and faithfulness he had tied around his neck and written on the tablet of his heart. Sarah knew that God had promised Abram that a baby would come from his own body. She didn't, she couldn't believe though that the baby would come from her own body as well. So she relied on her own understanding. Abram knew it was wrong, but in his faithlessness of that moment, he relied on his own understanding and took the matters of God into his own hands. And instead of turning from evil, Abram and Sarai embrace it. Their sin led to consequences that wreak havoc on the people of God to this very day. Brothers and sisters, I implore you to trust God. Trust his timing, trust his plans, trust his promises, trust his purposes. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. We cannot always know what God is doing, but we can always trust in the fact that God is doing something. Brothers and sisters, I don't know why he's not answered your prayers. I don't know why you desperately long for a baby, but he hasn't given you one yet. I don't know why you desperately long for the cancer to go away, but it hasn't. I don't know why you live in unbearable pain day in and day out. I don't know why your grandchildren are running from the Lord and no amount of gospel seems to bring them back. I don't know why that thing, whatever that thing is in your life that you've been so desperately praying for, that keeps you up at night, that droops your head in shame, that makes your heart feel like it's going to explode in brokenness has not happened. But brothers and sisters, I know that God's word that comes from his mouth will not return empty, that it will accomplish what he pleases and will prosper in what he sends it to do. Brothers and sisters, I know that all of God's promises find their yes in the person of Jesus Christ. And believer, he's working out all things for his glory and your good. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer self is being destroyed, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Brothers and sisters, put your trust in God and leave it there. 
And when you feel it slipping, fall on your knees and ask him to restore it. Get up and go out and turn your eyes to the heavens and count the stars and remember that God is the keeper of his promises. Bury your nose in the scriptures, believing that the word of God will not turn, return empty, but it will accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish, and it will prosper. If we let our trust in God slip away and we begin to rely on our own understanding, if we pursue those things that God has not given to us, then we will find ourselves like Abram, Sarai, and Hagar in a situation that is so complicated, so impossible, so painful, a situation that is humanly unsolvable, and in some situations, so complicated that there can be no solution in this life on earth. Yes, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but the pursuit of evil will never work out for the better. Do not lose trust in God. Let's turn to the second part of the story. At the end of verse 6, we can safely assume that all parties involved were willing to leave well enough alone. There's no hope of reconciliation. There's no repentance. There's nothing. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness the spring on the way to shore. There is no hope, that is, until God himself intervenes. By now, Hagar has made it a great distance from Abram's household. She's on the way to Shur. She's headed home to Egypt, and based on her location, she's pretty close. You can imagine her sitting by this well in the desert, her face red from tears or anger or exhaustion or a combination of all of the above. She's fighting mad, She's terrified. She has not one single friend in the world, no one to care for her, to protect her. That is until the angel of the Lord shows up and finds her by this spring. In verse 8, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord knows everything about her, and yet he asks where she's from and where she's going, and she kind of answers him. And she says, I'm running away from Sarai. And verse 9 says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. What? It seems weird. What's God doing? Keep reading. Verse 10, The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will bear a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. At this point in the story, God has told, in the story of Abraham, so since chapter 12, God has told Abram three times that he will make him into a great nation and that his offspring will be as numerous as as the stars. Continuing through Genesis 22, God will reassure him of that three more times. Then following, after Genesis 22, he'll make the same promise to Isaac and then again to Jacob. And all these promises, however, Hagar is the only woman God makes this promise to. The Lord takes her shame and he replaces it with honor. This son will indeed be counted in Aram's offspring, and he himself will have offspring as numerous as the stars. 
And the angel of the Lord tells her that she is to name him Ishmael, which means God has heard. Hagar has been used and abused. She's had no say in this drama. No one has heard her, but God has. Every time she says her son's name, she will be reminded that God has indeed heard her. When she rocks him to sleep, singing and cooing over him, God will remind her in her own gentle voice that he hears her. As he grows and becomes the wild donkey, God has promised her shouts to him will cry, God hears. This prophecy then points to the sad reality that Ishmael isn't the son of the promise. His offspring will be as numerous as the stars, but the blessing to Abram is not for Ishmael. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, Ishmael and his descendants will be at enmity with them. Instead of living in the promised land of Canaan, they will live outside of it. These are not the covenant people of God. And in a moment of doubting the promises of God, Abram and Sarai set up a conflict with the people of God that will last for thousands of years. Look at verse 13. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Birlahiroi. It is between Kadesh and Bered. For years, Hagar had been adjacent to God. She had no doubt seen Abram worship the one true God. Had she believed the wild things that Abram recounted God had said? We don't know. Had she believed in God herself? Again, we don't know. But here in this moment, in the spring, in the desert, she beholds the face of God, and he becomes the, she becomes the only person in the Old Testament that confers a name on God. And what does she name him? The God who sees. Then she names the place that she meets him, well of the living one who sees me. We don't have time to really dig into this, but this is the first time we are introduced to the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. We'll see him several times throughout the Old Testament. He speaks as though he is God. He allows men to worship him. He holds the authority that only God has. And I think there is little doubt that the angel of the Lord is in fact the pre-incarnate Jesus. In chapter four, we see Jesus, uh, sorry, in John chapter four, we see Jesus worn out from a journey. He stops and takes a break at Jacob's well in a town in Samaria. And about noon, while he's sitting at the well, a woman comes to draw water from the well. And Jesus asks her for a drink, which she balks at just a bit. And he responds, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water. Similar to Hagar, this Samaritan woman was an outcast. She was desperate with no friends. Her life of sin left everyone in the town talking about her, but never to her. Jesus tells her that whoever drinks this living water will never thirst again. Now she's no fool. So she asks him, where's this living water? So I don't have to come back to this place anymore. And Jesus tells her to go get her husband. And she says, I, 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 don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. She goes, um, so I see that you're a prophet. I have a couple of questions. 
She changes the subject to theology, and the conversation continues until she says this, I know the Messiah is coming. He will tell us everything. And Jesus stares straight into her outcast face and says, I am he. You see, Jesus has a habit of meeting those who are down and out and desperate and at the end of their rope. That's the assurance of the second half of Genesis 16. God sees you. He's alive and he sees you. Hagar had no hope. She was cast aside, thrown away, unwanted. She had been used and abused and not even given the dignity of being called by her name. Her womb was full of a life no one wanted, no one cared about. She limped back to the only place she knew to go. On that day, at that well, she was as good as dead. No one would have ever known. And God showed up. God heard her crying. He saw her need. He came and knelt with her, and he lifted her tear-stained face. The Samaritan woman at the well didn't have any hope. She had married and divorced five men. She was living with a sixth. Her life was consumed by sin and shame. She couldn't even go get water when the other women got, went and got water for fear of ridicule and gossip and slander. Men just used her. They didn't really love her. And then God showed up and told her everything about her life. He offered her living water. She drank from the well of the living God and her sins were washed away. Friend, God sees you. Are you an outcast? Have you been used and abused by the world? He hears your cries. Are you consumed by sin? You don't know how to get out? God sees you and he is there with a hand to pull you out and to rescue you. Whatever you're going through, a bad job situation, a terrible environment at home, loneliness, sickness, whatever it is, God sees you. You may be here today and you don't believe in the Lord. You don't follow him. Friend, let me tell you that God is in this place and he sees you. He knows everything about you. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your sin separates you from God. Your relationship with him is broken because of your sin. But because because God is the God who sees, he made a way for you to be reconciled to him. God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ came and down to the earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. And Jesus didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose to life, defeating death and giving those who believe in him eternal life. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is the living God who sees. Look back to Genesis chapter 16, verse 15. After Hagar meets with God, there's no pomp. There's not even any color to the story. There's just facts. It says, so Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. And Abram named his only son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Hagar stood up from her meeting with God, and she turned herself back towards Abram's camp. She believed God. 
She listened to what he had said. And when she reached Abram, she testified to what God had told her. We know that because the verse says that Abram named him Ishmael. She conveyed the prophecy of God to him and he believed. And I think it's fair to assume that Abraham repented and turned back to the Lord. Zerai's plan was that Hagar would have a child on her behalf. In these two short verses at the end of the chapter, we're told three times that this child belongs to Hagar. Sarah has no part in the birth of Ishmael. She receives no blessing from his life. And in fact, the story really only gets worse from here. Brothers and sisters, you may be doubting God. You may find it hard to trust him, to believe in him, to wait on him, to fulfill his promises to you. If you're contemplating an expediency in your life, let me encourage you to stand down. Grab a friend who loves the Lord. Open the Bible and read it. Fall on your knees in prayer to the Lord. The Lord is good. He has your very best interest at heart. And though you can only see a handful of things he might be doing, trust and believe that he is doing 10,000 things that you can't see. Let's pray. Oh, great God, you are, in fact, the living God who sees. Father, we trust and we believe that you hear us, that you are a good Father who delights in meeting our needs. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. God, we pray that you would put in our heart a trust in you so unbelievable we can't explain it. God, we pray that in the dark nights of the soul when our doubts have our heads drooping and our hearts breaking, that you would come to us, that you would speak to us, that you would remind us that you keep your promises. God, we pray that you would keep our path straight, that day by day we would walk toward the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where sin and shame and doubt will not have a place. God, we pray that we would trust in Jesus. And know that all of your promises find their yes in him. It's in the very strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.